book of Hosea, and we'll be in chapter number 14 tonight, the last chapter of Hosea. And what you're going to notice as we go through the rest of the minor prophets, so-called minor prophets, I don't think there's such a thing as a minor prophet, but as we go through the rest of these prophets, you're going to notice the end of the book is a lot more cheerful than the beginning of the book, uh, because it's always in the end of these books that Lord, the Lord lays out his hope for the future of Israel and his hope for the, our hope for the future of the world and our hope for salvation in Jesus, that we have in Jesus Christ and what a hope we have. And that, that uh, is what we're going to see here uh, in chapter number 14. Uh, when we get to this chapter, uh, and it's a short chapter, so we, we shouldn't be here too long, but when we, when we get to this chapter, Israel's fate has been sealed. There's no turning back now. They're going to be judged by God. God has set it in stone that, that uh, they're about to be judged by the Assyrians and they're going to go into captivity and there's, there's nothing that's going to stop that. But they're going to be destroyed, but they're not going to be annihilated. At some point, uh, and when Hosea wrote this, you know, it was a long, it was, 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, and we've 2,000 or so years past that. And so it, the Lord is speaking about a long, long time into the future here as we come to chapter 14. But for the Lord, it's not a long time, is it? Because a 1,000 years is as a day to the Lord. And so as he's speaking through Hosea here, uh, he already has seen their future, and he has already seen their hope. And even though their destruction for this, for this time period has been set, there was a gr there's a great hope as Hosea speaks, as the Lord speaks through Hosea, there's still a great hope for Israel. God's not done with Israel, as some people want to say. And we see that right away in verse number 14. It says, here the, the Lord speaks, he says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, to Jehovah your God, for you have stumbled. Actually, a better word there is you have fallen. You've been crushed. And, and that the Lord, when he speaks of them being crushed, is, is speaking of the near future when the Assyrians were going to come down and crush the nation because of their sins. He says there, you have, been, you have been crushed or you have fallen or you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, when the Lord says to Israel, return to me, he's not saying there that, I'm going to give, if you'll return now, I'll abate this uh, or I will uh, not judge you with the Assyrians. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is after you've been judged, after you've gone into captivity, return to the Lord because you have fallen. You're going to fall. It's as if it's already happened because of your iniquity. Well, what was their iniquity? Well, the whole first 13 chapters, we've seen what their iniquity was, and it was kind of summed up in chapter number 13, verse number 6, when, when the Lord said to them, they were filled and their heart was exalted. In other words, they prospered because I prospered them, the Lord says, but their heart was exalted. They didn't think they needed me anymore. Therefore, they forgot me. And once they, they forgot the Lord, they turned to other, really, I think a lot of it, a lot of Israel, the Israelites in that day were, were, were almost agnostic. They might have worshipped Jehovah God, but they had forgotten Jehovah God in their hearts. They really didn't know him. 
a good portion of the population had turned to pagan gods. Because when, you, when you're not in the word and you're not in uh, true worship or you're not worshiping the true and living God, you're going to worship something. Because every person has this passion for something we talked about last week. And so they begin to worship these pagan gods. And, and uh, they worship gods that endorse their wicked behavior. And so they were felt that they were free to do anything that they, they wanted to do. Uh, and what they wanted to do was evil. So they became corrupt to the core. And a generation of Israelites grew up that didn't know the Lord. None of them knew the Lord. The, the Israelites who were living in this day in the northern kingdom were just like the Sodomites and the, the people in Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were all wicked to the core. But God wasn't done with the nation. I mean, he says to them, you know, when, when you've lost everything, when you've lost your material possessions, when you're separated from the temple worship, when you're separated from your golden calf, when you're separated from your idols, uh, when everything's been taken away, return to the Lord. That's the place some of us have to come before we will return to the Lord, before we'll turn to the Lord. Uh, and, and so at some point, the Lord sees in the future. He says to them, he calls them even into the future. And he says, return to your God. And then look at verse number two. He says in verse number two, he says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. What's the Lord saying there? He said there, you're no longer going to have a temple. There's not, you, you won't have access to the temple in Jerusalem. You won't have altars. Uh, so, so there's no sacrifice that you can make. You're, you're going to be outside the sacrificial system. So there's nothing you're going to be able to do as a sacrifice for your sins. So take your words with you, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. So when Israel went into captivity, they had no means of worshiping Jehovah God. They had no priests. They had no temple. They had no altars. They had no means of worshiping the true and living God. And so God says to them, hey, take your words with you. Take the sacrifice of your lips with you. And, and so uh, here they were about to go into captivity. And when they went into captivity, uh, they were going to be in, a, in a, dire, a dire straits as far as their, their religion went. Uh, they were going to have to... Almost do it on their own, so to speak. They were going to have to make a choice to get back to Jehovah God. And sometimes that's what it takes. Because in our society and in their society back then, they were able to, to drown out their sin, their sinful state, their wickedness with alcohol and drugs and entertainment and all sorts of other things. And they never really reflected on just how wicked. They had become, but God was about to take all of that away and all their religion away and all their pagan gods away, and they were going to have to reflect on their own souls, and they were going to see what a terrible, what a, how terrible they had become. You know, that, that's the way a lot of people get saved. I mean, a lot of people get saved when everything's taken away. 
Remember when I was thrown in the jail for seven days back before I got saved. I mean, and I was forced, you know, there wasn't any entertainment. Uh, there wasn't, there, there, you know, there, uh, uh, there wasn't any alcohol or drugs. Actually, some of those guys actually found drugs in, in, in jail, but I didn't find any drugs in jail. There wasn't anything to cover up what you had hidden deep down in your soul. And so for seven days, which seemed like seven years or 700 years, it seemed like forever, I had nothing to do but just reflect on my own personal, on the, my own, on the state of my own personal soul. And I, and, I, and, I, and I realized then that how wicked I had become. And so, you know, it was that reflection that later on led me to repentance and, and the sacrifice of my lips became, Lord, help me. Lord, I see how wicked I've become. I mean, I had reached a point where, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't been in a church in years, and I don't think it was a church that would have had me back then. They would have kicked me out. And so I was alienated from all religion and, and, and put in a place where I had this situation, this time to reflect on just how wicked I'd become and and uh, it was the sacrifice of my lips along with the sacrifice. You know, the sacrifice of your lips doesn't do you any good if Jesus didn't sacrifice himself on a cross. But you bring the two of those things together where you're totally ready to repent and you're ready to receive the only sacrifice there is for our sins, which is going to be the same thing or the same sacrifice that's going to save Israel in the future. They're, they're, not, they're not saved right now. They're back in the land right now, but they're not saved. And I'm not one of these who go to some ex the other extreme and say that Israel is saved right now. They're not saved right now. All of Israel will be saved, Paul says. They're going to be saved. But they're not saved right now. Because even though some of them are reflecting on the fact of how wicked they become, or some of them might see that, they've got to couple that reflection, uh, that honesty, with the, what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so that's when uh, people get saved. But you know, God, God views the words of our repentance as like a free will offering. And so there is a sacrifice to some degree when we admit that we're wrong, when we admit that we're sinners, when we admit that, that we need a Savior. And again, if that's coupled with, with, uh, with Jesus Christ, then, then that leads to true salvation with, in, with, in, with true faith in Jesus Christ. But for you to have that faith, or to have faith, it has to be real faith. God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And for somebody to truly get saved, you know, I, I believe there's so many people out there they call themselves Christians that have never really come to this point. And I believe for you to truly get saved, you have to have real faith. You have to really be ready to put your faith in the Lord. And that's what, that's what Hosea is saying here, what the Lord's saying through Hosea. Israel was going to come to that point when everything was taken away with them. The nation's going to come to that point in the, at the end of the Great Tribulation where they don't have any choice but to turn to the Lord. Because there's nothing else they can rely on but the Lord. He's their only option. And I think that's the state just about everybody has to be in before they can truly come to the Lord. And, and, and that's the true sacrifice of your lips when you really come to the Lord and you truly are ready to put your faith 
totally in the Lord. Not in yourself, not in your government, not in your, your wealth, not in your material possessions, but to truly put your faith in the Lord. Not in your good works, not in your religion, but to truly put your faith in the Lord. Look at verse number three. He says, Assyria shall not save us. Well, you know, surely they were going to figure that out. Assyria was actually going to destroy them. They thought at, before at this time when Hosea was speaking that Assyria, Assyria was going to save them from Babylon and some of these other countries, en enemies that they had. And, and so they were relying on the very country to save them that was going to destroy them. They were going to find that out really quick. But they were going to come to the point where they realized that. That relying on other nations will not save you. Relying on your own military will not save you. We will not ride our war horses is literally what that says there. In other words, we're not going to rely, we can't rely on our army to save us. Their army was going to get crushed real quick, real quickly. Their army, one of the mightiest armies in the world at the time, it was going to get crushed. Nor will we say any more to the works of our hands. We, can't, we won't be able to rely on our material possessions or the gods that we make with our hands. They should have known that. That's foolishness, isn't it? To worship a God that can't speak, a God that can't, you know, that you've made with your own hands, that's, has to, that has to be created by you. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the, the fatherless, in, in the Lord, for in the Lord the fatherless finds mercy. The only way you're going to find the Father's mercy is in the Father, the true Father, Jehovah God. There is no other Father but Jehovah God that can, that can really save you. And they, they, were, they were going to have to come to that point where they where they made that sacrifice of their lips and they said, look, we can't rely on our army. We can't rely on other nations to save us. We can't rely on our possessions to save us. We can't rely on the gods we've made to save us. Only Jehovah God can save us. And they were going to come to that point. You know, I look at our own country. I, I believe America was at its greatest pinnacle when our government was the, the smallest. When we were a nation where people looked to God for their sustenance. They looked to God for their protection. They looked to God for their well-being. Now we have a society that's, that's we've uh, sown to the wind, and as, as Hosea says, and we're reaping the whirlwind because we have a society that makes, puts God, government in the place of God. And for our society to come out of that mold or, or out of that trap that we've fallen into, our government's going to have to collapse at some point. And I tell you what, when you're so many trillion dollars in debt and it's growing daily um, by billions and billions of dollars, we're not far from that. But you know what? When it does collapse, those who know the Lord will be protected. They'll be sustained because the Lord knows how to take care of his own. Then in verse number four, he says, I will heal their black backsliding. Remember we talked about backsliding. What is backsliding? 
It's where you dig in your heels, and God's got to drag you along to get you where he wants you to go. And that was the history of the nation of Israel. He constantly had to just, they, they had their heels dug in, and they were going this way and backing up, and he was pulling them along, and finally he says, you know, I'm not going to pull you along anymore. But at some point, I'm going to heal your backsliding, and you'll go where I want you to go, when I want you to go there. When's that time going to happen? That time's going to happen when the, when the Lord rules and reigns on this earth, and he works, he pours out his spirit on the nation of Israel. That's what happens for, hey, we're all rebels too. I mean, I was, I'm still to some degree a rebel. I don't want to say over, overall that I'm a rebel, but I, I still backslide sometimes. I mean, I'm not talking about falling back into some kind of sin. I'm talking about being where God has to drag me and pull me along. But, hey, before I was saved, I was, you know, I wasn't going anywhere where God was going. And, and who healed that? God healed that when he saved me, when he gave me his Holy Spirit. And he's going to have to heal the nation of Israel the same way. But he will. He's saying, I'm going to do that. I will hear their, their, their backsliding, and they won't have to do anything to reach that point. Because we're saved by what? By grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And note, when, when, when we reach that point, when the Lord returns and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount splits in two. Then it says he will pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, and they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as a mother mourns for her only child. And it's got to come to that point. That's what's going to finally heal their backsliding. Really, their national experience uh, foreshadows our personal experience with the Lord where the Lord pours out his spirit on us and we're able to see truth and we're able to, to, to receive the Lord. And it's, a, it's, a, it's by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. I will love them freely for my anger. And he's not saying now because he was, you read the first 13 chapters, he was angry with the night. He was hurt. And remember, every time it talked about how God was hurt by the nation. It talked about how angry he was at the nation. So God looks forward to the day when it's all healed. How can, I mean, how can God have any peace if he couldn't see the future? How could he look at me or you and say, hey, everything's going to be okay if he couldn't see the future? Because, I mean, looking at you guys, it, you're in trouble. You know, I'm joking, but, I mean, we're all still a mess, aren't we, to some degree. But God loves us. Because he sees our future. He sees us glorified right now. He sees us glorified in the future. And I wish you'd just take us on out there to that point. But that's not the way he works. And God might be angry at you tonight. But he's, he's at peace with you because he sees you in the future. And so, he, so he's angry with them, but he also says, for my anger is turned away from them. I'm not angry at them. I'm angry at them now, but I, I, I see in the future where I won't be angry at them. Because I've forgiven their sins, I've poured out my spirit on them, and I've healed that rebellious spirit in them, and I've ended all of that backsliding. Then in verse number five, he says, I will be like the dew to Israel. You know, we don't appreciate dew in Louisiana because we get way too much water here, and any kind of water is, is more than we need. But you go out and you live in a desert climate like 
when we lived in, in Phoenix and when we lived in Las Vegas or you go to Israel, when, when, when the dew comes, that's, that, that, that brings moisture to everything and it's much needed moisture. And so here's this picture of Israel who's this dry and arid land and there's coming this day when the dew is going to be poured out all over the land. And the land is going to flourish because he says it's going to, it's going to bloom. Better word translation there. He shall bloom like the lily. In other words, the land will boom. This desert land of Israel will bloom. Some people say that's happening now. It is to some degree. And I think it foreshadows uh, what's going to happen in the millennium. But hey, they ain't seen nothing yet. Let me put it that way. You just wait to the millennium and when God pours, pours out his, his, his blessings on that nation physically, but also spiritually. That dew is going to spread across the nation, that spiritual dew. And it's going to be poured out on the nation, and the whole nation is going to be blessed. It's like the, it's being poured out on the church now. And lengthen his roots like Lebanon. They'll be dug into Israel. There's nobody taking them out of Israel once they get back in that land and once the Great Tribulation is over. They might get kicked out of there again before the Great Tribulation. Different scholars look at that different ways. But once Christ comes back, there'll be no kicking them out. And not only will they have the land that they're in now, they will have all of that land that was promised to them uh, through Abraham by the Lord. And they'll, they'll, they'll receive all of that land. So there's, there's a day when, when uh, uh, not only is there going to be a spiritual restoration of Israel, there's going to be a physical restoration of Israel. And, and Israel is going to be the center of this earth, the center of the government of the world of the universe will be in that little area called Israel in Jerusalem where Christ will sit and he will rule and reign and his branches shall spread all over the earth. The outreach of his government will have no end. It will be throughout the universe and it will branch out throughout Jerusalem, I mean from Jerusalem throughout the entire universe and his beauty and I, I, and, and it, this is kind of goes with Israel because Israel will be where Jesus is reigning but really it's speaking of Jesus his beauty shall be like an olive tree what's good about an olive tree you've ever been around olive trees those things make olives all year long all year long there's always olives what did the Israelites get out of Oil. What does oil represent in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is going to be like an olive tree where he pours out his spirit and where we get the spirit by measure down. Sometimes we're filled with the spirit and sometimes we're not filled with the spirit. I got news for you. When that happens, you're going to be filled with the spirit forever. You're going to be totally filled with the spirit forever. And his fragrance like Lebanon. Instead of bitterness and pain and hopelessness and turmoil, Christ will rule uh, and bring forth a fragrance of peace and joy and hope. And then verse number seven. Then, though, then those who dwell under his shadow, under the shadow of Jesus, under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain. What has to happen to grain for it to produce? It has to die. It has to die. It has to go in the ground. And so it looks like Israel is dying. 
You read the first 13 chapters, and it looks like they're dead. But uh, they're going to return. They're going to be revived like the grain. They're going to be buried. It's going to look like they're buried, but one day they're going to sprout up, and they're going to be a great nation again. And they're going to grow like a vine. How does a vine grow? From, from its roots. What's the, who's the root of the vine? Jesus Christ is the root of the vine. We're the what? We're the branches. But those branches are going to go out throughout the whole world, spread throughout the whole world. And they, their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. What's, in the Bible, what's wine, what's wine synonymous with? Some people say it's going to hell, but it's not. <laughs> wine is synonymous with joy. With joy. And so their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. I mean, instead of, what, right now, when people think of the nation of Israel, most people think of it as a curse. You know, something bitter, not something like wine. Uh, You know, that's the viewpoint or the view that most people have of the nation of Israel right now. But but in those last days or in the days when when Israel returns to that land and the Lord rules and reigns there, uh, they're going to be symbolic of of joy, of things that make the the nation is going to be the source of all merriment. Because it's going to be from that throne of Jesus Christ that we're going to have peace and joy and righteousness in this world for the first time since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Won't that be a wonderful day? And no one, hey, nobody, when the Lord is sitting on his throne, if you go out and build a wooden idol, you are stupid, beyond stupid. There's no place for you in in that world. And so nobody's going to be foolish enough to worship idols again. Look at verse number 8. Ephraim Ephraim shall say, what what have I to do anymore with idols? There won't be any idols in the millennium. Zero. Zero idols. There won't be any idols in the new heaven and the new earth because God will be present. Now, you would think that that that's a pretty simple shut case that nobody would ever worship idols. But they had the temple and the Shekinah glory of God at the temple, and they went out and they worshiped idols. So it's going to have to be enforced, not for the church, because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And, and that's why John said, when we were looking at 1 John this past Sunday, that they went out from us because they were not of us. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't worship anything but the true and living Christ because the charisma is in you. Christ is in you. I mean, you, ha- you have no choice because your new nature knows who to worship. When I see somebody going off in a deep end into some false religion or worshiping some false god, that's because they don't have Christ in them. You can't do that if you have Christ in you. I mean, you could do it, but you... But it'd be just as stupid as these people building idols when Christ is sitting on the throne. And as born-again believers, we have no excuse because we won't be in Lafayette with Christ on the throne in, in Jerusalem. We will have Christ in us. The very God who's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem will be in us. He's in us now. And so Ephraim shall say, what have I to do with 
any more with idols. I have heard and observed him. I am like, I am like, the, like a green cypress tree. The Lord is like a green cypress tree. Why green? What's green? Have to, what, what, life. Everlasting life. life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. And your fruit is found in me, the Lord says. That's where you find fruit. That's where you find, what's the fruit of our souls? I mean, righteousness and peace and joy. That fruit is found in the fruit of the Spirit. It's only found in the Spirit of Christ, in, in, in Jesus Christ. And so, man, you know, who would worship an idol when you have the Lord? How could you worship an idol when you have the Lord? How, how can we worship idols now when we have the Lord? How, how can we put anything in, above the Lord when the Lord's been so good to us? When the Lord is so present in our lives? How, how can we worship anything else? Who is wise? Now, what he's going to do in verse number 9 as he concludes. It almost sounds like a proverb or a psalm. He's going to end everything he said about Israel with this little proverb. And the proverb is basically, if you're smart, you'll learn from what is happening to Israel here in Hosea. If you're dumb, you won't. You know, this Bible is not a history book. Although there's, 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 uh, books in the Bible that do cover history. That's never the Bible's intent to give us history, to give us a history lesson on the nation of Israel. Now, you want to get a history lesson on the nation of Israel? Go, go to the Bible. Granted, you can get it there, but that's not the Bible's intent. The Bible's intent to, in giving us the history of Israel is so we will be wise, so that we will learn from their mistakes. So that we won't go down the path that they went down that destroyed them. So he comes with this little proverb here in the last verse and he says, who is wise? Let him understand what I've said here, what the Lord has said here about the nation of Israel. Don't forget God. Don't become a harlot like Gomer was. Stay true to the Lord. Who's prudent? I mean, who looks out for, wisely looks out for their own welfare? That's what it means to be prudent. Who's prudent? Are you prudent? Then you need to learn from the nation of Israel. Let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right. They're always right. And they've been proven out over history. They've been proven out in your life. They've been proven in my life. The ways of the Lord are right. So what do I do? Do I trust in idols? Do I trust in my nation? Do I trust in my material possessions? No, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways I acknowledge Him and let Him direct my paths. Who is wise? Let Him understand these things. Who is prudent, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are always right. And if you want to be righteous, you walk 
in his way. His way is through Jesus Christ, through, through that green cypress tree, that vine, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's Christ in us. His son who he called out of Egypt, all the stuff that he's given us here. The righteous walk in his way. But the transgressors, the sinners, the wicked, stumble in them. They fall and they're crushed. But we stand because we stand for his truth and we learn these lessons that he's given us here through the nation of Israel. I, you know, if we're, those of us that are born again, and I would hopefully... I could say that for everybody in this room, and I think I could, but, but we, we, we know the way. We know the way through Jesus Christ. We found the way, and, and, and by grace, we've been made righteous. But there's still application in the sense that we still can drift from the Lord. We can forget the Lord. We still can let idols come in between us and the Lord. I mean, at the end of 1 John, we're going to have John sum up his whole book by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. And we still can stumble and we still can fall if we don't learn these lessons. Who's wise? Who's prudent? Those of us that Walk with the Lord in righteousness. Follow the ways of the Lord and trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the lessons you've taught us in the book of Hosea. We, we ask that you, you take these things uh, and plant them deep in our heart. And, and Lord, just help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Help us to learn from the mistakes of others, Lord. From, from the mistakes of those who reject you uh, and turn from you and forget you. And, and Lord, help us to be uh, those who, uh, Lord, desire to, 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 to be close to you and uh, men and women after your own heart. Help us to be that, Lord. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.